Matthew chapter 28. Important passage. Probably many of us could recite this passage. The Great Commission. Somebody want to recite it for me? I don't have to do all the talking this morning. What is the Great Commission? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Yeah, exactly. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Matthew. I'll give you a cookie afterward. <laughs> Who is Jesus talking to here? Look back a few verses earlier. He says, but the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which uh, Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. Um, probably not doubtful for long. Uh, what's the imperative in the Great Commission? You guys know this. Make disciples, exactly. Go is a participle, so you could even translate it as you are going, while you go, make disciples. That's the imperative. But Jesus is on the top of a mountain with 11 men. What do we do with that? Well, of course, we know that means this, this imperative was for just those 11 men. And they were men, so obviously this imperative is not for women at all. Those of you who know me are already smiling. Yeah. <laughs> so what are you women doing here? Yeah, exactly. It, uh, yeah, you're smiling because you, you know me too well. Uh, no. This is an imperative for all, isn't it? For all believers, not just men, not just 11 men, for all believers. Uh, how do we know that? Well, we know it because uh, Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Has the end of the age come yet? None of you look very glorified, so I don't think so. Uh, I mean, you got nice hair, Matthew, today, but it's, uh, yeah, not glorified hair. Sorry. No, we're not there yet. We're not to the end of the age. This is still an imperative for all of us. Some of my worst fears have come true over the years. Uh, let me describe for you some times when I've been fearful. One of those times was when I was about from me to Matthew, uh, away from a mountain lion. And uh, this mountain lion was not walking by or running away. This mountain lion was coming to me. Uh, and uh, uh, I've killed a few things over the years with my bow. Uh, I didn't bring it in as a, an illustration today. But that day, I killed a mountain lion with my bow. Uh, it was out of season. It was, uh, I had no tag uh, for a mountain lion. Uh, but I thought to myself, hmm, this isn't the way a mountain lion should act. Uh, especially since we've been within 20 yards of each other for about 20, 25 minutes. And I've been moving around. I've been saying things to this mountain lion. And uh, yeah, and he was not responding to my overtures of friendship. Uh, so 
Needless to say, that day that mountain lion died. Uh, yeah, we, uh, <laughs> but as you can imagine, that was an, an intense moment for a little while. Uh, but then there was another day after that, just a few years ago, when I was about from me to Matthew from a bear. Uh, it was only a black bear, fortunately, but I was in a big tree. The bear knew that I was there uh, because he circled the tree a few times and kept looking up and then came up behind me. Uh, so as he was coming up, I moved around to uh, meet the bear and we just had a brief conversation. <laughs> um, I basically said to the bear, uh, this is my tree. <laughs> and I had two hands on a limb and one leg ready to go that if he disagreed, um, one of us was going out of the tree. Uh, <laughs> I was hoping it was gonna be him. But he looked at me for a little bit. I said, it's nice to see you. I'm glad you're here, but my tree. Uh, and, <laughs> and he slowly kind of worked his way back down the tree. Uh, yeah, another intense moment, but probably not the most fearful moment I've ever had. The most fearful moment I've ever had was when they walked out with me to my car uh, holding my firstborn daughter and they put her in the car seat in the back of our car and then they did it. They walked away. And I was like, aren't you coming with us? <laughs> We're taking this baby home now. Aren't you going to come and show us how we're supposed to do this? Well, I've done a lot of stupid things in my life. That was one of the most fearful and probably the dumbest thing I've ever done. Having children. <laughs> it's a wonderful thing, but it challenges you every day. It makes you think, am I really capable of this? I suppose if we were to put it in a syllogism, Danny, it would go something like this. All fathers have limited brain cells. I am a father. Therefore, I have limited brain cells, exactly. Never perhaps so much as today. I'm standing here talking to you about women's ministry, about women in ministry. In case you haven't noticed, though I do have a woman's name, I uh, try to always have facial hair to uh, have, yeah, actually two women's names. Thank you. Yeah, that was, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for pointing that out, Danny. Yeah. My wife's sister, when we got engaged, said, wait a minute, it'll be Gail and Mary Heidi. That's three women's names. That'll never work. Uh, but uh, somehow we made it happen. <laughs> We're going to talk about women's ministry this morning. And dare I say, hopefully, we can say something meaningful about it. Uh, my goal this morning is to encourage all of us in what women have to offer and women's ministry and its importance in the church. I've got a couple of pictures that I want to show you. Hold on just a second, please, Joe. Uh, we're going to do something today. This is called the Rorschach test. 
those of you who are familiar with it uh, know what's about to come up on the screen. Uh, the Rorschach test is a test to see what your personality is like, perhaps even to see where you're going in life and what you will eventually be when you uh, become mature, older, uh, and eventually get to see Rick at his job. Uh, <laughs> uh, bring up the first one, if you would, please, Joe. There it is. Yes, thank you. What is this? What's that, Nick? I would say a moth. A moth, okay. What else? Anybody else got an opinion? Maybe it's a butterfly? Anybody see a bat? Some of you see a bat? Yes. What was the Rorschach test intended to do? Anybody recall? You psychology majors. Uh, <laughs> where's Blake when we need him? Uh, <laughs> it was supposed to help us determine, yeah, where you'd end up in life. What kind of personality you were. If you see a butterfly here, what do you suppose you're going to eventually become in life? A very pleasant person, perhaps a good spouse, a good parent. Um, if you see a bat here, what do you think you're going to become? <laughs> a bat, yeah. <laughs> Dracula, yeah. Yeah. One more time, Joe. Next picture, please. Thank you. Oh, that was a quick one. Uh, <laughs> How many of you see Abraham Lincoln? Oh, yeah. How many of you saw a skull first? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you deviants. Yeah, it's a, I'm glad we have Rick living in the dorms now. It's, uh, it's basically like prison ministry, isn't it, Rick? Yeah, I understand. <laughs> now, this is not, you can kill it now, Joe, thank you. This is not necessarily a test of your personalities that we're trying to do here this morning. All I'm trying to do is demonstrate there is difference in perception. There's difference in perception. What you see matters. And the application, fairly simple. Perspective matters. Perspective matters. What you bring to your observation, what you bring matters. You guys get this all the time, I'm sure, in Ryan's class in peacemaking. Perspective matters. Is this a problem or an opportunity? How do we look at it? How do we see it? Uh, women in ministry, another wonderful illustration of perspective mattering. Because we can either see limitation or we can see opportunity. How do we see it? What are we seeing? A bit of uh, evolution, perhaps, of the uh, feminist movement may be warranted at this point. Um, some of you may be familiar with the name Gloria Steinem, uh, one of the founders of the modern feminist movement. Uh, only a few of us were alive when uh, Gloria Steinem was popular and when she was the driving force behind the feminist movement. But Many of you are still familiar with her philosophy in particular. There was concern because women were being treated unfairly. And there's no doubt about the fact that that was the case. It really was the case. 
But Gloria Steinem's answer was to say, listen, we can be, and I'm paraphrasing here, she didn't say it this way, but this is kind of how it worked out. We can be just as good at these jobs as men are. We can do the same things that men can do, and therefore, we should be paid the same thing that men are paid. Now, I don't disagree with that. However, the philosophy behind it, to a certain extent, created a backfire, created a, a landslide, if you will. Because as soon as you say that we can be just as good a men as men are, how are women being defined? Notice how they're being defined? How is it? By men. Yeah, exactly. Gloria Steinem, good intentions, perhaps uh, a very liberal person, but uh, some good intentions, I, I certainly recognize. But the answer, I think unfortunately, did a disservice to women. Now, why would I say this? Because during the 1990s, women started to discover this. There was a, a neo-feminist movement that arose during the 1990s which said something like this, wait a minute, we can be just as good a men as men are, but I really don't want to be a man. Uh, I want to be a woman. Now hopefully the recording has been going all along and didn't just kick in right there and caught me saying that. Uh, <laughs> no. Women want to be women. And the feminist movement, a secular movement, started to take some hints, take some uh, advice from Christians who were in that movement, or at least aware of that movement, who said, wait a minute, women are different than men. And that's okay. It's a good thing, in fact. And we want to be women. So maybe we should define feminism as something feminine rather than defining it uh, somehow as a male issue. I introduced that just to give us some illustration again of perspective. What kind of perspective are we bringing to women's ministry? Now, I'm not going to exegete some passages for you. I just want to simply read them for us, and ask you, how do you see them? What do you see in the passage? Titus chapter 2, for instance. One place where women in ministry is discussed, Titus chapter 2, and we'll, we'll just start where it addresses women. Older men are addressed, younger men are addressed here in this passage, but uh, Paul, in his letter to Titus, specifies or, or singles out women as well. And he says in Titus chapter 2, verse 3, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, or faithful to their labors at home, kind being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. Now we could spend, and, and someone may this semester, I don't know, someone may spend 
a good deal of time trying to exegete, okay, what does each one of these mean? Uh, but just as an observation, what do you see? Problem or opportunity? Limitation or creativity? In fact, we know that the fact, <laughs> the fact that Paul is even writing to women in the church and addressing something to them is a novelty in itself. It's rather stark that he would take the time to do so in the church. And Paul is recognizing that women are a critical part of ongoing church ministry. 1 Timothy chapter 2, harder passage, I would argue, but nonetheless one that we have to at least deal with. And again, I'm going to cop out, not exegete the passage, but just have us look at it and ask the question, problem or opportunity? I'm going to get, begin in verse 8, because I think the problem exists uh, for men, or the opportunity exists for men just as much as it does for women here. First uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or, and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. But she shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. Paul goes on. I won't read all of the qualifications for elders. There's a recognition that Paul seems to have here that limitations exist on women. I don't think we can get around it. But do limitations exist on men also? Yeah, they do. You guys know this as well as I do. We all have to submit to somebody. Thank you, exclamation point. We all have to submit to somebody. In the very least, we all have to submit to the Lord. But there are always authorities over us. We all must submit. Being submissive is not something specific to women. In church leadership, we must submit to church leadership. In marriage, Ephesians 5, there is submission involved in marriage. For men, just as much as there is for women. Men are not free to do whatever they want. But again, we come to 1 Timothy 2. Problem or opportunity? Well, the problem is... I cannot teach men. The opportunity is, I cannot teach men. <laughs> Be thankful. I've taught men for a long time. It's not that fun uh, all the time. 
Um, it, uh, it's not all that pleasant. But there is a call on your life to teach. Where is it expressed? Titus 2 really helps. Teaching women. Opportunity. Not necessarily limitation. An opportunity to be a woman, to teach in a feminine context, that's a wonderful thing. Why am I the one uh, trying to uh, bring this discussion up or contribute this, to this discussion? Um, let's see, about 22 years ago, uh, I was uh, a young elder in Grace Bible Church. And I was asked to try to resolve a conflict. Um, I unwisely raised my hand and said, here I am, Lord. <laughs> Send Pastor Brian, please. Uh, no, I was, I was asked to resolve a significant conflict in our church. And that conflict was between two different groups of women. And out of that was born a theology of women's ministry for our church because we needed to figure some things out. Uh, and I spent the next 15 years or so helping or being a part of women figuring that out uh, because I was the elder responsible for women's ministry. I think it had something to do with my name, but uh, <laughs> nonetheless, there are a few points that we need to consider carefully when uh, we start to think about a theology of women's ministry, one of which is gifting. Because oftentimes you'll hear the argument, oh, you guys don't believe that women can be pastors, but what if a woman is gifted in teaching? Well, if she's gifted in teaching, she's gifted in teaching. So she should be teaching. There are opportunities to teach. Many opportunities to teach. I happen to be married to someone who is gifted in teaching. She's been teaching for, I don't know, 30-some years now. Uh, and uh, uh, several of those years, 10 of those years in public school, uh, 20 or so in private school, she's a teacher. She's a gifted teacher. There are many of you here who are gifted teachers. Yeah. Gifts are something given by the Spirit and needed by the body of Christ. If no one leads women's Bible studies, if no one teaches in women's ministry, do we really expect Pastor Brian or Pastor Jim or whomever to do it all? I don't think so. No. Women are needed. Women's ministry is needed. Gifting matters. Now, we can't lose sight in all of this that women's ministry still needs to be part of a church. How do we develop a niche ministry? And if you guys aren't familiar with the term niche or niche, it's a specialized ministry like we are as a Bible college. We're a niche ministry, a specialized ministry. It's not an insult at all. It's just a recognition that we're doing something that's fairly specialized. Women's ministry, yeah, is a specialized kind of ministry. Uh, how do we develop a niche ministry that does not become a satellite 
of the church. Something we have to consider because when I came along, that's how ministry was done as women's ministry that we knew at the time. It was, well, nobody wants to really be involved in it uh, as an elder, so we'll just kind of let them do whatever they want to do. And we had two parallel ministries. Not necessarily a good way to function as body. So somehow, and I don't know that there's a perfect formula. I know I didn't develop any kind of a perfect formula. But somehow there needs to be a connection between women's ministry and the leadership, the elders of the church. Uh, why do I say that? Because I know what Hebrews 13, 17 says. That elders will, leadership in the church will be accountable for the ministry that happens in the church. So as an elder, I thought, okay, if I'm accountable for this, I guess I, I should probably work at it somehow. How should we read these passages? Well, if we believe, I, I, I want to put this in a slightly different context for us, just a different way of thinking about it, maybe a different way of seeing the ink blot, if you will. Um, because I'm fairly convinced that we are, by and large, uh, context-driven when it comes to this issue specifically. And by that, I mean our culture has shaped much of our thinking. And, and let me just put it in a, a slightly different wording that may help us think about it differently. And it, it I think... Uh, is a, uh, uh, an appropriate way of thinking because women are often called the fairer sex. Guys, what does that mean? Yeah, Mitch, take a stab at it if you're not afraid. My wife is a lot better looking than I am. Exactly. <laughs> and thank you for admitting that. Uh, praise God she is. <laughs> Yes, they are the fairer sex. In other words, they are far better looking than men. Um, and I've, I've seen guys with long hair before, and I totally would agree with that. Uh, why is everybody staring at Peyton? That's, that, uh, he, you look good in long hair, but you would not make a good woman. That's a compliment, yes. <laughs> no, I want to set it in the context of beauty. Precisely because I think women are far more beautiful than men. Uh, far more. And if we put it in that context of beauty, if we believe that beauty is associated with freedom, then we will always see these passages and this issue as limiting, as a problem. And I'm afraid that's what our culture largely has done. It has associated beauty with freedom. But I think if we go back to even Genesis 1 and 2, we may have a better definition of beauty. We may be able to see beauty slightly differently. And, and this may be more uh, applicable to broader situations than just women. Uh, in other words, guys, you can be beautiful, too. Uh, <laughs> yes, thank you, Matt. Uh, what if we associated beauty with faithfulness? With 
even, and, and, and this is why I'm saying it's not exclusive to women, what if we associated beauty with obedience, with appropriate submission to the Lord? What might we consider beautiful then? Beauty resides in the body functioning as it was intended. How were you intended to fit in the body? Where is your place? If that's how we define beauty, then that helps us perhaps a little bit to, to see things a little differently. And rather than seeing this discussion as a limiting discussion, see it as opportunity. There's someone who I often think of when uh, uh, thinking about this particular perspective or this subject. Um, he's somebody that some of you may know by name. I doubt if we know in person. Uh, his name was uh, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Uh, any of you who are musicians know where I'm going with this. Mozart was born in 1756. He died in 1791. That makes him how old? And I understand, math is hard. Uh, <laughs> only 35 years old. He died at age 35. Some of you are getting close to 35, Danny. Uh, <laughs> oh, and by the way, um, some of you are perhaps even close Closer to 35 today. Happy birthday. <laughs> you guys didn't know it was Tasha's birthday today. Yeah. If we had lunch, we would sing to her. But uh, I've heard you guys sing. So. <laughs> what did Mozart do in his lifetime? Obviously, he accomplished much. But there's something really peculiar about Mozart. Really peculiar. And if you study music... Uh, which I'm married to one who has studied music, and I live with another who's about to graduate with a degree in music. Um, you learn something about Mozart. Mozart was limited by the octaval system. What does that mean? What's an octaval system? Well, let's start with a word that you're probably more familiar with. How about octopus? How many legs does an octopus have, or tentacles? Eight. That's why they're called an octopus. Yeah, exactly. Octa means eight. Uh, an octaval system, any of you who've had piano lessons know, how many notes are there in a scale? It's eight. From C to C is eight notes. It's an octaval system. Oh, my. Suddenly, we have limitation. Only eight notes, but there are so many more. Mozart, you're, you're limited. You only have eight notes to work with. Well, any of you who've listened to Mozart know that what he did with eight notes is pure genius. Pure genius. And he only had 35 years to do it in. His music is popular to this day. 
still played, still sung to this day because it was pure genius what he did. In other words, he didn't see limitation when he saw eight notes. He saw opportunity. Creativity was perhaps Mozart's middle name. He accomplished much because he saw and seized the opportunity. Perspective is what he brought to the table. It's what you can bring to the table, too. It's not necessarily limitation. It may be tremendous opportunity. Would you pray with me, please? Father, as we consider some hard passages, perhaps this semester, perhaps in our own study, and I, I'm sure we are all familiar with them, Lord, give us your eyes to see. Your eyes that see with value, see with love, see with tenderness and opportunity. As we look around ourselves and, and we see how creative you are, Lord, we know that you didn't stop with your creativity when you created men and women. In fact, you did a wonderful thing by giving us creativity ourselves. So, Lord, help us to see in a way that is faithful to the text, but sees such faithfulness as beautiful. We pray through Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You are dismissed.